Welcome to Authorized, a podcast where we voraciously read the novelization of any film fortunate enough to have one. Novelizations ask, hey, are you sure you want to see a beloved blockbuster film? Are you sure you don't want me to watch it and then recount, stream of consciousness style, what it felt like to watch it? Steven Spielberg's action sequences are cool, but they have nothing on my boundless vocabulary for onomatopoeia. We are your hosts, a loose coalition of novelization enthusiasts. My name is Andrew Overby. My name is Johnny Pomato. I'm Hannah Blackman. And I'm Andrew Marco. And today we're covering the junior novelization of Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park is a 1993 science fiction action film directed by Steven Spielberg, based on the 1990 novel Jurassic Park by Michael Crichton. The film follows several characters as they navigate and fall victim to an amusement park whose main attraction is live dinosaurs, brought back into being by DNA found in fossils. An initial preview of the park goes haywire almost immediately, with dinosaurs escaping their confinements and forcing our protagonists to fend for their lives against prehistoric predators. The junior novelization Jurassic Park was written by Gail Herman, based on the screenplay by Michael Crichton and David Kep. It was published by Grosset and Dunlap in 1993. Who is Gail Herman? Gail Herman is a children's author based out of Newton, Massachusetts. Since Jurassic Park, she has continued to write in many established cinematic universes and TV universes, including The Little Mermaid, Scooby-Doo, and Clifford. She is most famous for the Who Was and What Is books, which are picture books that teach young children about difficult topics like climate change, racism, and the Holocaust. So she'll have these books that are like, what is the Holocaust, and explain that to kids, or, you know, uh, who is Jackie Robinson? But then also there is one that just says, who is Derek Jeter? So kind of a much lower, <laughs> lower stakes uh, uh, topic than, than her usual fare. Um, a wide chasm between <laughs> yes. the Holocaust and Derek Jeter. <laughs> exactly. Um, so anyway, guys, I just want to open up by uh, sort of uh, attacking some, some general thoughts. What did we think of the junior novelization of Jurassic Park? Uh, I was astonished as I was reading this book to kind of slowly realize that I have read this before. <laughs> I now remember that, yeah, back in 1993... I was I had dino fever, so I would you know any dinosaur thing that I could get my little hands on, I would read. You know, after Jurassic Park, we all did. Uh, you know that, and we're back a dinosaur story that also came out that summer. And uh, I do vaguely remember reading this book because uh, I don't know it was just on the school shelf. So it's like yeah, yeah. I want to. Uh, I, I do think that the uh, the Jurassic Park movie took a very long time to come out on VHS. So a lot of us were hungry for, for more. You know, after it left theaters, we had a long wait before we could just watch it at home. So maybe this filled that void. And uh, yeah, so it was, uh, uh, as I remembered, and I, I, I think I would reach an, a specific passage here and there where I thought, oh yeah, I, I remember reading this exact <laughs> thing before now almost 30 years ago, dear God. Wow. That rules. <laughs> what a perspective. <laughs> Uh, Johnny, you, that makes me wonder, like, is the novelization as an art form uh, specifically pre-home video? Like, it does, it, does it have its roots in that hunger for, like, I cannot watch this movie again and I must get a taste? 
I mean, they did overlap, you know, at least for me. Uh, you know, home video was certainly uh, uh, on the rise and booming big during uh, when I read all of my junior novelizations as a kid. Uh, but yeah, I do think that it did scratch that itch a bit in that, well, I have to read something. Let me read something that I already know the story to, I already know I like, and maybe I'm going to get a little extra insight from, uh, you know, the, uh, the pros. Uh, I'm not sure if that happened with this one, but uh, yeah, I, I think that that's the purpose it serves, specifically towards kids. I, I will say I read a lot of junior novelizations as a kid of movies that I hadn't seen because maybe I wasn't old enough to. Mm-hmm. I specifically remember reading the, uh, uh, the what year was it? Uh, the, the Jeff Bridges King Kong novelization, <laughs> uh, because I guess I was too young to see that movie. I don't know why. It's a... Uh, Maybe my parents were just protecting me from a not so great movie, not you know, <laughs> not not the best King Kong adaptation. But Hannah, what uh, what'd you think? Um, I have almost no memory of ever reading junior novelizations. I skipped right over them. So for me now, when I read like young adult novels, I'm like, boy, this is so condescendingly written. Like, God, who is this for, kids? Um, and obviously the answer is yes. And this one is one of those. I mean, it moves very fast. It's very simple to the point where sometimes I was like, where are we? I've lost track of like, who's in this scene? Um, it also like doesn't include some of the like really iconic moments of Jurassic Park, which yes. are mostly appropriate for children, in my opinion. Like I got to hold on to your butts and there was no hold on to your butts. <laughs> I was like, kids would, kids would love that. Why isn't that there? Um, but it took me an hour to read, so like I can't complain. And there, no, you know, uh, as Johnny was saying, like there's a couple things in here where I was like, oh, that's an interesting touch. That's a slightly different perspective. Yeah. So here's the tally that I had of like extremely memorable moments from the movie that somehow did not make it into the novelization. Uh, th- this blew my mind. Now I know that. often, and I don't know the case with this one, uh, you're working from an early script. It's not like after the movies come out and you can have these very clear reference points and also knowing what audiences respond to. They, you know, you you know in advance what the big laugh lines are. But uh, there's uh, objects in the mirror appear closer than they, or are closer than they appear. That's not even described. And then uh, a lot of the kids' material, uh, a lot of the, the, you know, uh, which is interesting because I think that, especially with Jurassic Park, uh, these novelizations for kids are geared towards kids by sort of making the whatever children are in the film the main character of the book. So yeah, this is very heavy on Tim and Lex. Uh, and people like Malcolm are a bit off to the side. But uh, there's no, uh, they're flocking this way. Uh, there's no, uh, you know, the one, two, three, I'm on the electric fence, and then I, I get electrocuted, and I'm somehow revived, and then I say three. Huge laugh from the audience at that. Uh, and then, you know, not just the kid stuff, there, there was no clever girl. And then I think the biggest of them all, which definitely speaks to kids, uh, a, a, a laugh that everyone could get, is uh, when, the, uh, when Pirates of the Caribbean breaks down, the pirates don't eat the tourists. Nowhere to be found in this book. Even the iconic, like, when dinosaurs roam the earth banner, not mentioned in the beginning, not mentioned at the end, used as a piece of text with no sort of, like, fanfare. Yeah. Very interesting to see what was left out. This is probably a good time to mention that I have not seen the movie. Is that true? Ever? Yeah, ever. 
So, well, I mean, that's understandable. You're nine years old. You're not yet ready for it. <laughs> right. I'm sorry, how old are you, Andrew? I was. A, I, I am. A, I'm thirty, and in, in a week or two. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I wasn't totally outside the age where people were watching it. I remember that someone at a like at my own birthday party when I was like eight or nine gifted me Jurassic Park action figures that I would play with. So it was like it was around. I just never watched the movie. And pretty much everything you just said, I don't know what it means. Like that objects in closer than they appear. I don't know what that is. <laughs> you have such a treat so waiting weird. for you. Um, like a yeah. masterpiece of a film to watch. But I, ladies and gentlemen, the authorized podcast will return in two hours after we show <laughs> Jurassic Park to Andrew. <laughs> well, I thought that maybe there'd be some some merit to me not watching it because just reading this book was very confusing. <laughs> this, to yeah, me, seems like something... Not only does it seem like something that assumes you saw the movie, it actually felt like a child who saw the movie telling me what happened. Like, there was, there is so much, like, and then the dinosaur came through the roof. Like, it's, like, very much written like that, um, with sort of the uh, the emphasis and the enthusiasm of, like, you know, a child, um, which I don't necessarily mean as a diss, but it just was confusing. So many characters are introduced so quickly that I didn't really know how to differentiate between them. I actually didn't catch on <laughs> that one of them was a child for a really <laughs> long time. <laughs> yes, I will. Uh, I, I will acknowledge and agree that uh, it is less of a moment when the grandchildren show up as it is in the movie. Uh, you know, it's like, there is a line, but it's not like, you know, in the movie, there is a very clear, like, grandpa moment. And, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, everything with all the characters are really truncated. That's obviously the first thing to go in a junior novelization, I would say. Uh, Malcolm, uh, the Ian Malcolm, the, uh, the uh, mathematician, uh, played by Jeff Goldblum in the movie, definitely a scene stealer for the entire film. They center the sequel all around him. Mm -hmm. uh, I feel that he is barely acknowledged and mentioned. I mean, he's there, and he has a few little bits, but he's the comic relief in the movie, and he gets no laughs in the book. It really felt like his character should have been rolled up into another character in the book. Yeah, but I think that that would just confuse the children who had seen the movie, um, because uh, yeah, I do think that that's typically how these things are done. You you don't read the novelization uh, unless you've seen the movie, Andrew. I mean, what kind of crazy sociopath would do such a thing? Okay, to be to be fair, Johnny, I did I did like force a friend to only uh, read the Battleship novel without seeing the book, so I I myself set a little bit of precedent. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that it is only a wise decision to not watch the Battleship movie in whatever circumstance <laughs> presents itself. Like, yeah, even if you are reading a novelization to compare to the movie, still don't watch the movie. And that might go for the upcoming Rugrats episode, too. So yeah, we shall see. Now, that's a movie I haven't seen, and I'm looking forward to having the experience Andrew is having right now. <laughs> I only saw Rugrats in Paris, and I was completely lost having not seen Rugrats the movie. <laughs> Wait, okay, are, are th these kids are American? What are they doing in Paris? Who's the redhead kid? Yeah, I just didn't know. You're watching... I mean, why are these dinosaurs alive, really? Oh, uh, that a is, question. yeah, they have the dinosaurs. The novelization glosses over so quickly. Like, the explanation of DNA is um, 
really cursory and that's fine. I don't need it to be like Michael Crichton level science. Um, but like that whole experience of like the little ride that explains Jurassic Park, too fast, need more. Yeah, well, okay, I will counter to say, at least in the movie too, the joke is that it is a very dumbed down, like here's for kids, there's an animated DNA with a little sure. Texas accent talking. Uh, however, I did think that this novelization explained one thing that is not explained in the movie explicitly, something that as a child I didn't quite understand where they say, okay, now we have the DNA from a mosquito and that makes a baby dinosaur. And I thought there are steps missing here. And mm -hmm. in this book they say, we fertilize an empty ostrich egg. And I was like, that, that's all you need. That, mm -hmm. that is not in the movie. Okay, now I understand where the egg even comes from. <laughs> I found all the scientific explanation in the book pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> like when they were like, oh, how did they reproduce? Well, these frogs do this thing where their their biological sex changes and we used the frogs to make the dinosaurs. I was like, good. Love that. Yeah, that's pretty straight up out of the movie. Yeah, by that point, uh, you know, the, the dinosaurs have already attacked. So they're just like, okay, yeah, yeah. The frogs can change their gender. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, a thing that doesn't pay off in this movie or book, but yeah. it's fine. Um, I will say the thing that made it into the junior novelization that is actually straight out of Michael Crichton, and I was very impressed that it had made it all the way, is how do you know they're all female? Do you go out into the park and lift up their skirts? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Andrew, I must ask an earlier point. What action figures did you have from Jurassic Park? Were these... Alan Grant and Ian Malcolm, or was it a Triceratops? I was going to touch on this because I have questions <laughs> about the action figures. So I know I had Ian Malcolm, um, but I must have had action figures from a sequel because the action figures were all about hang gliding. Is that a thing? Oh, you had oh. the third one. Okay. Yeah. These exact same action figures, okay. yes. It I'm was doing like the math. If he's about to turn thirty, yes, it, it means that the that was probably the right yes. age range when you know two thousand one, and that just makes me feel older. I was gonna say, Andrew, <laughs> because I, as Johnny was for the first movie, I was definitely the eight year old for Jurassic Park three, who was very excited, who read all the junior novelizations and dinosaur books for the third one, mm -hmm. and I will say for the first movie because I was a scared little kid. I think I watched the James Earl Jones uh, hosted documentary about the making of Jurassic Park yeah, we all before did. I ever saw the movie. So there were things in this book that I remember saying, I know the ending is different in the script where I believe just the dinosaur skeletons were going to fall on the raptors and Spielberg decided that wasn't exciting enough and added the T-Rex at the end once he saw the effects. So I was actually surprised that made the novelization because clearly this was late enough in the process where that ending had been set, but it was past the script pages. So hmm. I was surprised. It almost felt like it had been written after the fact, except for obviously some <laughs> great lines missing. Though I don't know what you guys are saying. I mean, hold on your, to your butts is great, but you asked for it, which is what yeah. uh, Samuel L. Jackson's character says in the novelization is clearly iconic. And I think you guys are <laughs> Wait, Mr. Arnold. I'm sorry. I wasn't even aware Samuel L. Jackson is in Jurassic Park. He yeah, sure is. Mr. Arnold, who's like their head of tech, who turns off all the switches, and then they turn it back on and nothing happens. I feel like it would take effort to avoid Jurassic Park as much as I did, but I somehow just <laughs> did it. 
Like, I, I don't know seemingly anything. <laughs> mm-hmm. But not, none of this, like, stuck in my head. Like, I was, like, reading pages, and then I would, like, end up flipping back three pages all the time to be like, where even are they? <laughs> well, let me ask you this, having not seen the movie. Um, as a kid, but I, I don't even think it was just a, a kid thing. I think whole audiences who had never seen this, it was a huge event movie, and... Uh, Atypical for Spielberg, at least uh, other than Jaws and such, it was a scary movie. It, it, it's borderline like horror at times, mm-hmm. and uh, it was uh, quite the thrill ride in that you know opening night uh, crowd. Uh, you know, a, a, a lot of big jump scares and such, uh, and then the kitchen scene with the raptors was just terrifying. Edge of your seat entertainment. Did you find any of the t- descriptive passages to uh, even suggest that this was like a, a scary sequence? I guess the only thing that minorly thrilled me was, like, using the bones of a dinosaur like a staircase. Mm. (laughs) Um, I thought that the word raptor came up way too much in the second half of the book to the point where, like, it was actually undercutting the action because they kept being like, and there were two raptors, and we ran away from them, but then there was a raptor over here. And it was like I was getting numbed to the concept of raptor, (laughs) if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. But also, I think these action sequences always lose a little juice going from page to screen because I really struggled, like, in Gremlins with how they would just have, like, those extended, like, like the fight in the athletic store, you know, where it was like, and then they threw softballs at the gremlins and then they used tennis rackets. It's like that stuff on the page is always a little bit of a chore. So I mm-hmm. guess as it, in regard to children, I think that the book does a good job of explaining what is going on and what the immediate danger is in that moment. But I also feel like it's all the book is doing. I also feel like mm-hmm. because the book is so short, like, it takes a long time in the movie for the raptors to really show up and become a threat. You know, like, you're, you're told about them, they eat the cow, it's very scary, but you don't see them then for, like, an hour. And when they show up, they are the scariest monsters you've encountered yet. Um, and this is just so fast, you know? Like, you're, the difference between talking about the raptors and the raptors eating Muldoon is, like, 20 pages. It's not enough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, given the uh, the very short length of the novel, I was at least impressed that it does pretty much hit every beat of the movie. Like, there's nothing big left out. Now, the descriptions of these events are usually pretty short, sometimes reduced to a paragraph or two, but it is all there. There's not, like, a whole character who was omitted. Like, yeah, you could have just left out Muldoon and, you know, uh, Ellie just yeah. runs to the power station, turns it on, and runs back, and everything's fine. Uh, but, yeah, it, uh, it it is all there, which I think was mm-hmm. atypical for these uh, junior novelizations. I think a lot of the time you were cutting whole subplots that weren't necessary to fit into 88 pages. Yeah, they're even including the doctor with the triceratops. Yeah. Like, and they mention at some point that there are other people still at Jurassic Park. Because the movie suggests that it's like four people are there by the end of the book. And they're like, oh no, there were tons of other people just hanging out in other buildings. And they were fine. <laughs> they were cool. Which I, I think is one of the, well, the, I, flaws is, is too strong a word because I do think that that movie is just about perfect. But it, maybe one of the issues I always had with the film of the whole notion of the boat leaving and Nedry having to get to the boat and all of these employees are leaving. And I still to this day when I watch it, I think, 
this is the first time something is actually happening at the park since, you know, you've been working on it. You actually have guests, and everyone is just taken off and, uh, you know, trying to beat the storm. And you have to think, don't you have lodging at this place? Like, there must be a place where Nedry <laughs> sleeps at night. He doesn't just, like, shuttle back and forth through the mainland. And land. wouldn't you be safer in a hurricane on an island than on a boat? <laughs> yeah, you'd think. Yeah. <laughs> Though the book seemed to suggest that he was coming back. He was just going to drop off the embryos and then go back to his desk. That's true. That's the thing that felt different than the movie. That, like, my impression in the movie was that he's getting on that boat and he is never returning to Jurassic Park. Um, yeah. 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 I have questions about Nedry. Uh, I'm assuming just <laughs> you know who based... plays Nedry? I was going to say, I'm assuming just based on typecast that this is the Wayne yes. Knight character. Were you yes. referencing <laughs> like, that seems... the, like, pictures in the middle of the book to say who are these characters? Oh, I found those fully unhelpful. <laughs> they are not captioned so in any get... way. So, yeah, I'd love okay, to say, because... say, who do you think is who? Because... Yeah. Oh my god. Okay. Please. Let's no. Let's do this. Okay. So, in the upper left-hand corner, but this requires me to remember character names, which is <laughs> I'm also struggling with. Okay, I'm assuming. So actually, let me say this. I'm assuming middle of the page is Muldoon. Oh. No. Who's Muldoon? <laughs> the lower corner. He's like Mr. Big Game Hunter. Shotgun. <laughs> okay, and who is My that My favorite acting? character in the movie. That's Sir Richard Attenborough as John Hammond. In the middle. Okay. I, I really, like, I read this book cover to cover today. <laughs> I truly, like, I really did. And I, like... Same. I didn't, I don't think I rushed through it, but, like, I, the beginning of this book is, like, meet this guy, meet this guy, meet this guy, and then the dinosaurs attack, and I just couldn't keep them straight, because they had, like, no characteristics for me to latch on to. Um, okay, Dr. so Grant then... Grant doesn't like kids, and then he does like kids. Oh, and there's that great line, I wish I had bookmarked the page, at the end, where the narrator is like, uh, he's nice to a kid, and the narrator's like, he had changed. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, thank you. Thank you for letting me know. <laughs> Uh, okay, yeah, that really seems to be the A story of this book. Like, they're really <laughs> hitting home the, oh, Dr. Grant doesn't like kids, but then he spends some time with some kids, and uh, yeah, yeah, everyone likes kids. Hey, kid, you're reading this book right now. <laughs> Don't you like the kid stuff? Yeah. I felt insulted on, like, page four when they brought that up for the first time, and they were like, oh, and the thing is, he really doesn't like kids, and I was like, wonder where this plot's going. <laughs> and um, along with that, there, uh, Lex uh, has a crush on Alan Grant, which I feel is really hit hard in the book, yeah. much more than in the movie. I think in the movie, there's that thing where she sort of smiles at him and she wants to ride in the car with him, like at the beginning of the mm -hmm. tour. And then does that ever materialize again in the movie, Andrew? Oh, oh, I'm sorry. You, you haven't <laughs> But, uh, yeah, it, I, I don't think that's a big part of the movie. It's, it's a toss-away line at best. But, yeah, it, it pops up all over again and again. I was going to say that was one of the things in the novelization that I liked. That's, like, a little touch that's extra that, like, makes sense to me that Lex, who's, like, 13 or 14, would have a crush on this sort of, like, dashing cowboy guy who then saves her. I was like, this makes sense. I like it. It brings it down to a personalized kid level. Um, in the same way that the book, I think, spends a little more time on that Ellie and Alan are, like, dating, which the movie is, like, very vague about. And that this question of, like, what's our future if we have kids or don't have kids is, like, a question. And that's why Alan's arc is, like, important to their relationship. Uh, things that I liked, actually. But, 
but you're putting a lot on, I mean, once again, just based on the book, you're putting a lot on that relationship because <laughs> really what we get in the book is he just is like, I don't like kids. Somebody goes, are you two dating? And she's like, uh, I don't know. And then at the end, he's like, I like kids now. And I, I, I agree with you. There's an arc there about like deciding you can have kids together, but it is not here in the book. I grant. I totally, you are right. It is not totally there. This is me like taking the movie and the book and being like, oh, I so see what you're doing. Is the movie more explicit about like them considering having children? No. Okay. No. Not even explicit about dating. I, I think in the beginning, Laura Dern says, uh, or, or, or uh, Grant says to her like, oh, you're the one who wants kids. And she says, yeah, I want kids. I don't want that kid in reference to the little punk who's talking about uh the Raptors, I, but I think that's as far as it goes. And I too, as a kid, was not entirely sure if uh, Ellie and Alan are a couple or if they're just colleagues, a little flirty. He maybe wants something more, but you know, there's yeah. there's a distance there. It's uh, not clear in the book. I mean, in the film, uh, other than there's a moment when Malcolm says, "Hey, are you two together?" and he says, "Yes," but I always sort of thought that he was lying just because he didn't want her to be with Malcolm. Yeah. The one thing that is Speaking of like major beats, um, and I think this is totally visual, the like chaos theory explanation in the car, yes. which is not there, which is just more Ian Malcolm stuff, which I feel like if you were like, we're just going to like not have him be much of an interesting character here. Like there's two, it would make the book too long. Obviously, he says, he says chaos theory is a big part of the movie and certainly and the Malcolm's book. character. Mm -hmm. And in the book, uh, here is the quote about chaos theory. Uh, <laughs> The park won't work because of chaos theory. That's it. That's that's all you get. So he treats chaos theory. I, I'm so glad we're talking about this. He treats it like he's saying Murphy's Law. Yeah. Yes. Right? Like he literally is like chaos theory. Shit is bad. <laughs> like that's his that's his life philosophy in this book is like we can't have nice things. <laughs> It makes me wonder how much of that was Jeff Goldblum. Because, I mean, his style of acting is so... It feels so off the cuff that you're like, was that entire scene just, like, Spielberg rolling the cameras and Jeff going for it and flirting with Laura Dern? I don't know. Uh, it was, it's been a long time since I've read Michael Kreischen's book uh, in full. I, I, I have read it a few times. I really loved it. But I do remember Malcolm not being as much fun as he is in the movie. I think a lot of that is Goldblum. A lot of it is uh, his, you know, just sort of weird flirty energy. He and Laura Dern did momentarily fall in love during the production on this film. And, uh, yeah, I, I think that he, uh, he also in the book Jurassic Park, Malcolm does die. And I, I think that there's a reason he doesn't in the movie. Part of that is Jeff Goldblum is just way too likable to kill off. I mean, the original book has also, like, the whole back half of the book is almost entirely different. Yeah. Um, yeah. Definitely the also worth a read, um, Andrew, if you're curious. Oh, the, the actual book? Yeah. Um, Wait, this is the not the actual book? book? <laughs> this, is, this is, like, a sub-media uh, that I'm really excited for the podcast to explore, which we were discussing before we recorded, which is, like, the book-to-movie-to-novelization. Because it really strips away the facade of like artistry like you can write you can write a novelization of battleship and like kind of be fooling yourself and be like it's gonna really pop on the page in a way it doesn't on screen but you cannot write a novelization of 
Jurassic Park or our upcoming episode on Great Expectations and be like, this is better than Charles Dickens. This is better than Michael Crichton. <laughs> um, now, one thing I want to touch on was uh, this is a story, a movie, a, a original book where there is a fairly high body count or at least people die and violently too. Uh, so it was interesting to see how that was handled in the book. You can't not kill off these characters. Uh, a few of them just have to go. Uh, the first one is uh, the lawyer, uh, Gennaro, Gennaro. And uh, there is a moment in the novelization that is nowhere in the movie, which I thought added an even extra layer of gruesomeness to it, where uh, Alan and Tim and Lex stumble on his body. And I thought... Wait a minute, his body, like, it's it's still there? Because in the movie, I don't think you see it exactly, but I always thought the implication was that the T-Rex swallows him almost whole. He really just goes so. for it. and uh, I thought it tore him in half. He picks him up, shakes, shakes him, him around a bit. Yeah. And, but yeah, But they mentioned finding part of him. Muldoon and exactly. yeah. Lord Dern are like, oh, I found part of him. And oh, in the movie, yeah. you might oh, be right. Yeah, yeah I, I do vaguely remember that. So, okay, they, so they but mentioned for a in the movie, movie where... For a novelization where most deaths are like, and then the dinosaurs got him, to even mention parts of a corpse felt yeah, like... Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, a, I'm only getting a mental image at that point. And there's a, oh, they found his body. And I'm thinking, oh my God, what state must this body have been in if he was, you know torn apart by a T-Rex. Uh, and yeah, I, I expected something more like Nedry's death, which uh, I think I don't have the book in front of me because Andrew has my copy, uh, that it's uh, it's the end of a chapter where it says, you know, oh, oh Nedry needed help, but nothing could help him now. It, it's yeah. all very ominous and vague without getting into the details of he was being ripped to shreds by a Dilophosaurus. It does, interestingly, and I wonder, like the frill on the Dilophosaurus that sort mm -hmm. of pops out in the movie, which is like not it. based in science, no. but is extremely frightening. And Andrew, you should watch Look, it. Look, I guess I'm It is I'm Connecticut State Dinosaur. <laughs> what if we tried Do to it. sit down for our next recording? It's like whatever movie we're doing next. And I, on the episode, was just like, guys, but I really need to talk about Jurassic Park. What a film. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I might watch Jurassic Park once we're done yeah. here. Like, yeah. talking about it has just got me so jazzed up. Oh, reading about it got me thinking about it and wanting to watch it. I had a, I read the first two chapters of this last night before deciding I wasn't going to read the rest last night. And I had a Jurassic Park dream. And it reminds me of how, like, the movie and the book and the world, like, it does like the, it does create something you want to learn more about. I get why it was a franchise because it's like, no, I want to see like what this place was like when it was running. Mm -hmm. And then when I saw the movie where it was running, I w I wished and regretted immediately that that never happened. Uh, oh yeah, <laughs> is that the second yeah. one? That's the fourth one. Yeah, fourth that's one. Jurassic World and Jurassic World Two, whatever the subtitle There's was. There's three where they where oh, they haven't opened yeah. it. Yeah, there are two. I thought well. So in the second movie, they go to a different island that was never intended to be a park. It's just like a science. It's like Jurassic island. Studios. Yes. Yeah. And then Jurassic Park 3 is on that same island. They go to rescue a kid who accidentally ended up there due to hang gliding. That is also one funny thing about these, these novelizations is like we were originally going to do Jurassic Park 3, the junior novelization. And every once in a while, you go and look one of these books up and it's like, oh, cool, it's going to take two months to get to me, or I can get it on this other website for $300. <laughs> I regret selling my copy knowing 
the the non fungible token <laughs> levels of money for it. Uh, um, so speaking of not seeing the movie though, that is not what I thought. Life finds a way meant. <laughs> like, I really thought he was saying. I don't know what I thought he was saying. That like, you know, they were gonna reproduce or they were gonna try to escape or they don't like being confined. The fact that the context of that line is like. I know you only put female dinosaurs on this island, but I believe some will turn male in order to reproduce. I could never have seen coming. <laughs> yeah, conceptually, it's pretty wild. And <laughs> the movie, just, I mean, the whole thing just asks you to like go with it. And the magic of Jurassic Park is that you're like, I buy it 100%. You sure do. I'm with you from beginning to end. Now, Andrew, oh, I have a question right. for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this may, might be a segment. It might never happen again. We have all these books with these wonderful color photos. Uh, can you tell me about your experience looking at the eight-page, you know, glossy color photos? How did that add to your reading, well, f- having never seen the Let's movie? not even get ahead of ourselves here. Let's see if I can name everyone on that page. I still might not be able sure. to. So- we might have to put this on the Instagram. <laughs> so I think of the... Uh, top left, I've got Alan, right? I have to have Alan yeah. there. Yes. And then I've got Ellie. Uh-huh. And then we've got these children around an older man. And I think <laughs> the, ch- the child on the left must be Lex, right? That's correct. And then I, d- I straight up don't even remember the name of the other kid. But it that... They say it's Tim. so awesome. Tim. Tim. Yeah, that's Timmy. right. Uh, and then I still don't know who the guy in the middle is. <laughs> it's, it's John Hammond, as played by Richard Attenborough. Okay, cool. A much cuddlier version of the character than is in the original book. I really can't stress enough. It's it's just that these names are just names to me. Because the book <laughs> doesn't, like, even really go that far in on being, like, he was a middle-aged man. Like, it doesn't do any of that. No. It's no. just, like, there's a man named Tim. Or there's a kid named Tim. There's a man <laughs> named Hammond. Yeah, and I think that the book... I, I think the book is meant for kids who have seen the movie and love it, or the other part of that pie chart is a very thin sliver of uh, little children who were not allowed to see the movie, and so they <laughs> snuck this book out of their school library, and they just poured over it and pretended that they were watching it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, then the bottom I've got. That's Ian Malcolm, that's uh, Nedry, and that's... Um, We've said it already because I messed up. That's Muldoon. Okay. I'm very pleased that Muldoon is featured on this page. Muldoon seems in that photo to be Tim Blake Nelson. <laughs> no. Bob Peck, random British Australian, Australian actor. Australian actor, yeah. Very, uh, cool. very charismatic and uh, kind of sexy. No, I believe Tim Blake Nelson made his debut in the film Heavyweights. Oh, so, really? You're too off, yes. Okay, the next page, which I don't know if we're ever releasing video recordings of this, but it has this <laughs> exterior... I think I think this page is pretty self-explanatory. It's like, that's whatever the center, the, like, welcome center of Jurassic Park is. That's them in the Jeep going around, uh, and then that's them tending to the... What was it called again? The one with the... A triceratops. The, the one with the, with the, with the stones in it. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's more than we Another ever get in the, thing yeah. Yeah. For, Was yeah. that not in the movie? Well, I, I think Hannah should probably explain what happens in the movie during this scene. Oh, well, thank you. Well, um, 
in that scene in the movie, Ellie is talking to the doctor and is like, what about these poisonous berries? And the doctor's like, they don't eat those. And she's like, you can't know that for sure. We have to have not solved the mystery of the sick Triceratops. <laughs> okay. And what does Jeff Goldblum say to that? Yeah. Yeah. And now that's a huge pile of shit, I think, is the, the first <laughs> quote, which you understand is not in here. But I can't believe you omit the poop <laughs> entirely. This is for <laughs> children, after all. They love poop. <laughs> We should probably explain also then what the book sort of corrects that to, which is, is there no explanation of the stones? So I'm, I'm already forgetting what it's called, but what is the, what is the, can, the pocket that the, uh, yeah, they're the gizzard. Stones. Yeah. I mean, it's so kind of remarkable that this is a probably fairly scientifically accurate, uh, thing that they're describing. I don't know if it's true for the Triceratops, but it's, you know, certainly there are animals that do this in, in the world. Uh, and it's, uh, an odd thing to include when you are, you know, cutting, uh, graphic deaths of other characters and such. Definitely. Yeah. It's, it's, so it's just like extensively explained. And by extensively, I mean a third of a page. That's the deepest we go on anything in this book, but, um, it's extensively explained that the, Triceratops eats all these stones to hold in its gizzard to then mush food up. Yes. And I'm trying to remember, how does that make it sick? Because it has to push the stones out sometimes. When it gets rid of the stones, it has to eat new stones. And when it's eating the new stones, it eats some of those poisonous berries, is the explanation oh, given. So the stones have nothing to do with the sickness at all. No. That's that triceratops can just chug stones and it'll be fine. No, yeah. yeah. The stones were really the red herring of the world. <laughs> <laughs> um, the rest of these photos are pretty self-explanatory. We've just got people being absolutely terrorized by these dinos. Just yeah. in the Jeep, Jeep getting pushed over by a T-Rex. And then that sequence of the children going through the kitchen and trying to escape the raptors. Looks like a cool movie. I think this top picture is Ellie in the power shed. Oh, you're right. Though it is, I mean, you put these together and I was like, oh, this is Lexi in the kitchen. But it's, I don't think it is. They could definitely have been on different pages. <laughs> I was sort of surprised that they chose, because I believe, if I'm remembering the movie correctly, this bottom raptor is CG. Whereas the rest of the dinosaur images are practical effects from the movie so i was sort of interested if they would have any cg pictures given it's the 90s cg doesn't look as good mm -hmm. maybe one in still frame that it does moving so i mean the the in my opinion every single like cg creature in jurassic park holds up perfectly like not a single one of them looks fake to me pretty much um, I think the roughest moment in the whole film, and it's still pretty good, is the uh, they're flocking this way. The uh, mm -hmm. the, uh, the, the when you when you look at the long shot of that, you can kind of see okay, these are cartoons, but you also don't care. It is amazing how well this CGI holds up in ways that movies from two years ago their CGI doesn't hold up. Yeah, and like also these pictures are not the most high quality images. Yeah. They're a little fuzzy. <laughs> I will say, I, I don't have the book in front of me, but the, the picture, I think, on the last page of pictures of the uh, Tyrannosaurus tearing apart the Jeep. Oh, oh no, I'm sorry. That's it's the a few back one. then. It's him tearing apart the Jeep. I remember that was, you know, 
back when this movie came out, there was not a lot of press about what these dinosaurs would look like. The trailers were pretty vague because it's not like now when we just show every major part of the movie in the trailer. Uh, you, you weren't getting the big moments. So like a big thing in the trailer was seeing the Tyrannosaurus foot step in the mud and stuff like that. But every movie magazine, Premiere and Cinephile and all of those had that picture of the T-Rex robot tearing apart the Jeep and oh my God, we were so excited to see this movie. <laughs> I mean, there's details in that sequence that are not included here. Like when he busts in the skylight and the kids are under the plexiglass, which is so scary. I didn't even realize this reading this, but now you talk about how great that sequence is. And Andrew, you could watch that sequence on its yeah. own and be like, yeah, this movie's good. The goat is not in the, no. in the book. Yeah. I think the idea of feeding a goat to a dinosaur to as, as a live well, I mean they have the live cow. That's weird. Uh, yeah, in the in the movie, uh, they they try to coax the T Rex out with a goat, and uh, then all of a sudden later you see, hey, the goat's gone, and then his bloody carcass hits the windshield. So you know, scary moment. The whole theater jumps. Yeah. Oh. My favorite line in the book is when the car falls over on the kids and they're like, oh, we were okay because we went through the hole in the sunroof, which I thought was really odd because first of all, like in the movie, is it evocative of the, is it, is it Buster Keaton? Who's got the, is it like actually evocative of that visually in the movie? Yeah. And then somewhat, and then yeah, and then Tim has another laugh line that's cut from the book. He says, "Okay, and we're in the car again." Oh, the whole audience laughs. We laughed too. The fact, but I feel like by that point there is no roof on the car. Yeah, the jeeps in the movie have like a full skylight, like from front seat to mm -hmm. back seat. So they pop that out, and then it's open. And then so when it falls, like there isn't like a middle bar to smush them. Yeah, yeah I thought it was weird that they described it as the hole in the skylight. I was like that. The skylight is is a hole. <laughs> Great point. Um, speaking of favorite lines in the book, I would like to share mine, if you don't Ooh, mind. Yes, At the very end, when the T-Rex is fighting the raptors, it bites one of the raptors, you know, and shakes it and then throws it down. And then the line, ow, holds, holds the raptor with its final breath. Like, <laughs> I took a picture of it. I sent it to my friends. Nothing better than a, the idea of like a scary dinosaur being like, ow! <laughs> well, it's so, it's so rare in this book because most of the dinosaurs are just roar exclamation point. Mm -hmm. And that gets, a, I'm, you know, we, we had read Gremlins and there's so much flowery language to describe things in that, that to have someone just being like, roar! said the Triceratops, roar, said the Tyrannosaurus. <laughs> it was refreshing to have a, like a, some pathos and some emotion coming for this raptor. It literally says, roar, said the Triceratops. <laughs> it's treated like dialogue, and I thought it was very, I thought it was very uninspired that it wasn't done like phonetically, that it was just roar. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is why I really appreciated that quote, oh, W-W-W-W, exclamation point. I mean, the whole book is really dumbing things down to an extraordinary level. So let me read one of my favorite quotes, which uh, this is an, you know, almost a line from the movie, a very memorable line from the movie, I would say. In the film, they say, they move in herds. They do move in herds. And in the book, 
It's a little more of a uh, smug, they move in herds. We were right. And all I could think was, they don't trust the audience to italicize a word. Just right. They do move in herds. They do. Like, it's so simple, and it's so iconic from the movie. That's, uh, you know, 30-something years later, everyone still knows that line. But no, uh, not, not in this book. We were right. <laughs> This this was really the opposite I, I found of like both of the books we've done previously in that the conflict happened so immediately that like I felt like I didn't even know like what planet I was on. Like there's barely any things are barely ever good in this book. It's just like the park's open, we're all screwed. <laughs> The wonder and majesty of the dinosaurs is kind of lost, for sure. Like, in the movie, there are early moments where you're like, wow, they're huge, they're magnificent, and everyone's in awe of them. And this is like, let's get moving. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. why the movie... It's, it's one of the reasons the movie works so well, is that you are quite comfortable for, I'd say... Almost an hour. I think the T-Rex attack happens about an hour into the movie. And so you've had an hour with this movie of just the spectacle. And the idea in your imagination is like, wow, what if a park like this did exist? What if you could go see dinosaurs? It was so much fun for me to imagine as a kid in that theater. And when things turn, boy, did I get scared. I did not want to see the, the raptors chasing the kids through the kitchen, any of that. It was way too much for me. I was watching through my fingers a few times. So let's talk about Dennis Nedry for a second. So, first off, his plot about like sabotaging Jurassic Park is introduced on page seven. Like we barely have gotten to know anything about this park. And then we meet this guy who is going to take it down. Which is accurate to the movie. Yeah. I feel like that's pretty... Within the first 15 minutes, we know that. It's an odd thing. And actually, uh, the last time I saw this movie, which was during the pandemic, Robin and I went to the drive-in to see it. And I've seen this movie so many times. And I, I wasn't, I guess, content that night to just sit back, relax, and enjoy the comfort food of it. I really started to play with it in my head a bit. And even though I would argue the movie is just about perfect, I started to think, what... Could you change to, to uh, might maybe improve it? And one of those things I thought was there is a lot of preamble before you even get to the island that I don't, you know, it's mostly exposition. It's mostly character introduction. But I do wonder if there was a better way to introduce that Nedry is sabotaging than literally seeing him get a bribe at the beginning of the movie to do it. Uh, same with the introduction of Alan and Hammond and everyone. I was wondering what the movie might look like if it started with all of them in the helicopter on the way to the island. And there was maybe a way to parse out some of that information, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, that happens before that throughout the, the sequences that follow. Uh, I don't know. It was just a fun little project I was thinking of. I don't think that the movie is uh, uh, in need of these fixes, but uh, yeah, given that the book abridges so much, it certainly was an opportunity to do a little more, playing around with it then. I mean, it would be amazing and different to be in a position where you are arriving at Jurassic Park with the characters who don't know what they're walking into. Like Alan and Ellie have no idea that there are dinosaurs on this island. And to share the experience of like, oh, because um, there's a lot of preamble about like, this is a dinosaur movie. We're dealing with dinosaurs. Everyone has dinosaurs. We're all dinosaur people. 
um, not again. I mean, I agree. It's a perfect movie. I wouldn't change a thing, but it is a, a, a good thought experiment. Is the device that Nedry uses in the movie a shaving cream can? Yeah. Yes. And is it specifically Barbasol? Is it better explained than in the book? Because I can't picture how he's going to get these specimens into the shaving cream can. It is explained, and it makes an adorable sound when open. <laughs> it's like a little spy device. Why Why was it part of his, like, cover? Like, so when he leaves and shuts down the park, he takes his shaving cream. Why did that not, al- like, alarm anyone? <laughs> uh, I think that... You, uh, they don't see him take the shaving cream. I think it's uh, hidden in there. So when he boards the ship and if he is searched, no one is going to bat an eye at him having some shaving cream. Oh, interesting. Okay. But yes, I've... who is shaving at the park unless you are sleeping there overnight? <laughs> which in that case, why do you need a boat shuttling them back and forth? Uh, there's, this thing's so full of holes. Maybe Spielberg's movie is forever. Did the book <laughs> mention that the shaving cream gets left behind? No. No. Or is it just no. too... It can't be that... Cause it's a very famous, I feel, dropped element from the movie is that that shaving cream can kind of gets left behind, buried in the mud, and then it's just never addressed again in any This sequel. is chaos like, theory. <laughs> That's the whole thing. Like, the domino effect of, like, he's going to sabotage the park, so he turns off all the power, and then it doesn't even matter because he gets eaten and the stuff gets buried. and like. But meanwhile, everybody else is in trouble. I remember as a kid, before... Jurassic World came out. Every all, all my friends on the schoolyard, or not Jurassic World. I'm sorry, uh, the Lost World. Uh, all my friends on the schoolyard were speculating, like, what could the sequel be? What could the movie be next? And people were saying, well, the embryos are still in the shaving cream can, so they're going back to the island to get it. And even as a kid, I thought, well, that doesn't make any sense. There's literally a line about how there's only coolant in there for maybe 48 hours, and like, what? There's also embryos just in the park. The, you know, you only need the can to smuggle it off the island. Yeah, the, the can is is useless. It, it's sort of odd that it does get that shot in the movie of like, oh, there it is, getting buried. It's like, well, yeah, I mean, all of his stuff is getting buried in mud. It doesn't really matter, does it? I, I don't know. I've, I've never quite understood the, uh, the, the the extra fascination with the shaving cream can. I think but it's it does a cool make a little great device, sound. and it makes a cool sound, and we're all just like, ooh, neato. I can't wait to see what this sound is. You guys are really hyping it up. It's adorable. (laughs) One thing about the raptor pen uh, that caught my eye is the idea that, like, oh, the trees were so overgrown you couldn't see inside. And I always thought, well, no, we, the audience, don't see inside because Spielberg is saving the raptors for the third act of the movie. I always assumed that Grant and Ellie could see inside and see this cow being ripped apart to pieces and then uh, John Hammond said oh who's hungry and they all have lunch it's a big laugh Uh, but yeah it it was odd that uh, the author was taking this so literally like well I didn't see him so no one sees him Uh, and gave more pathos to that cow because I feel like we learn a lot more about that cow's like feelings and it's sad the cow in the movie seems like uh, another Thursday huh (laughs) this is literally what I'm bred for so you know to have a purpose is is the greatest uh, gift in life I mean, in general, I think the design of Jurassic Park is bad. You might not see a dinosaur on your entire tour. (laughs) The raptors are in a concrete box because they're so dangerous. It's not like when you go to a shark at the aquarium and you can, like, look inside, as far as I understand it. Like, sounds like a great time to, like, go to the coast of 
Costa Rica and like spend time with your family and like go to a resort, but you may see zero dinosaurs. I hear what you're saying, Hannah. You're saying that the Colin Trevorrow design of the park improved things in every way imaginable. It makes more sense as a park, but it's a much worse movie. That it is. That it is. I mean, they did have a Margaritaville. And like, I would prefer to go to John Hammond's Jurassic Park than Colin Trevorrow's Jurassic Park. Like, the, the whole point of Jurassic Park is that it's supposed to be real and tangible and like, it's nature and it's like a nature preserve more than it's a theme park. And, uh, you know, the failing of Jurassic World is that it doesn't understand that. Wow, I called it a theme park in my intro. I guess I'm a hack, huh? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So, you guys want to hit just uh, how you feel about the novelization? Would you recommend it to anyone? Would you never recommend it to a person? And the highest praise that we've never, ever given any novelization... Would you recommend it to someone who hasn't seen the movie? Uh, Andrew, you want to start us off? Yeah. I mean, I could see there's many an eight-year-old who maybe wants to watch these, and you give it to them to give them the taste because it might scare them too much. Mm -hmm. I think it's definitely in that demographic. I mean, for me, I would recommend it only if you haven't watched Jurassic Park in a while and you need a reason to want to watch it because, like Hannah said, I could watch this tonight. I could watch many Jurassic Park films tonight because this just excited me for the franchise. (laughs) Yeah, I think what Andrew says is dead on. It's this is for children, and uh, I think in that regard, it's uh, pretty good. Uh, It it hits all the beats. I do think that this works more as uh, a companion to a kid who has seen the movie, is obsessed with the movie, and he, uh, you know, or she gets to say he because this was me as a kid. and they get to uh, just revisit all of their favorite parts, even if they are in uh, much less detail. Yeah, I agree. I would recommend it to a kid who loves the movie, but maybe is like young, like really young. Like I think any like a even like a a later young reader, I think would be disappointed by this book. You know, so like there's a very fine age window where like you like dinosaurs. Maybe you saw the movie and your parents like carefully explained to you that most of it is fake and you were entranced by it. Because, um, like, I think a 12-year-old would find this disappointing, but an 8-year-old would like it, you know? I think this book is very specifically geared towards someone who has the visuals in their head already. Because it is written in a way that, with literal, like, booms and pows and kaplunks, like, there's so much onomatopoeia, and I think it's it's its purpose as a novelization is to like activate things that are already in your head. Um, and this never occurred to me while I was reading it, Andrew, because I didn't think a 30 year old person existed who hadn't seen the movie. <laughs> I, I, I just, uh, I, I didn't think that that was a possibility. I will admit that I saw five minutes of it without sound at a party in college. I, that's how I knew Wayne Knight was in it. But yes, <laughs> otherwise I somehow uh, somehow steered clear. But it, look, I'm very excited to read the book. I, or to read the book. I'm going to read it again. Um, I'm very excited to watch the movie, I mean. I should hope um, so. I think just a, a lot of it, if I'm being honest, is the fact that it is this you know, cultural touchstone and that everyone loves it. And I know it's iconic. 
Um, and also, I don't know, just having read the novelization, it has a plot that sounds like it could be dramatized in an exciting way. So, but I think, I think as a novelization, it doesn't stand alone at all, and I don't think anyone intended it to, and I think I made a terrible mistake <laughs> by only reading it. <laughs> oh, you definitely have. Now, before we go, I, I do want to do a little, uh, uh, little segue. Uh, Hannah's uh, cat cameo uh, just reminded me. Um, so I had lunch with my neighbor today, and uh, he was. Uh, we, my wife and I, were away for a year during COVID, and he was checking our mail and watering our plants. A very nice gentleman uh, has a uh, delightful little Jack Russell Terrier named Elvis, and we uh, took him out to lunch. And we weren't sitting uh, at the table five minutes before he burst into tears to tell us. Elvis, who is 15 years old, he has a little doggy tumor, and, uh, you know, his doctor, his vet gave him about six months to live. Now, this was eight months ago, so Elvis is doing okay so far. And, you know, we felt horrible. We knew that this day would come. Elvis is an old dog. He's getting up there. But, he said, the story has a happy ending because I have already started the process to have Elvis cloned. So... It just blew my mind, especially after reading Jurassic Park last night, that, wow, this movie that I saw in 1993 has technology that is just being applied to regular, you know, doctors in the East Village with pets that, he's, that they'll miss. It's uh, pretty remarkable. It's, it's, uh, the future is now, people. This guy has a step <laughs> missing in his plan, though, because it's Ostrich very... Eggs. I was going to say, it's very short-sighted. He's like, I'll have another Elvis, I'll clone him. What do you do when that Elvis dies? You obviously have to clone two Elvises, give them frog DNA so one of their sexes changes. <laughs> and then you, you just have endless Elvises. Well, I don't think that'll come up. I think the more likely scenario is that this man, who is uh, in his uh, mid-70s or so... <laughs> um, he, I don't know if he will outlive Elvis too, as he's going to be called. <laughs> and Robin and I keep thinking, oh crap, we're going to get saddled with this dog when he dies. You know, he's about to start the process anew with a new puppy. You think he's got 15 more years? I don't know. We'll see. He's really just getting a jump start on the grieving process, it sounds like. Yeah. Right? Oh, this he, is he like, seems way ahead of it, yeah. This is coping before it happens, yeah. Um, well, wow. okay. <laughs> Uh, on that note, uh, <clears throat> thank you to anyone who might be listening, if that ever happens. And uh, we'll be back next week with uh, the Rugrats movie. Ooh.